My name is Gavin. I'm uh, one of the pastors here. So glad uh, to see you guys. And uh, Jack, thanks for reading the Word of God this morning. Appreciate it. Hey, would you guys open your Bibles to Luke chapter 14? We need to squish. I'm getting the uh, nonverbal from Chris. Will you guys all scoot to your right, please? I'm sorry to be that guy. Thigh to thigh. Let's do it. Family time. I'll just give you a hint. Come to the nine. There's a lot more room here, I promise. A little motivation to uh, get here at the nine. All right, we're good now. As you move, would you please open in your Bibles to Luke chapter 14, verses 7 through 11. That is going to be our text for the day. We've been working our way through Luke's gospel. And today we find ourselves zooming in on a scene where Jesus is at a dinner party with some religious leaders. And uh, the topic that Jesus' original hears and that you and I in this room are going to be confronted with today is the topic of humility. Humility. I would contend that one of the most distinguished marks of a Christian should be our humility. Okay, If you think about this whole gospel Jesus thing, how do we get into the family of God? How do you become a Christian? Where does the gospel start? It starts with us admitting, I am a sinner... I am uh, uh, out of luck before a holy God, and I am completely unable to remedy my situation. I need grace. That's where we start, okay? So I would contend that by definition, to be a Christian means we need to be humble, amen? Come into the family God, into the church uh, community, the Christian team. We should be a very humble team. Now, I would also contend That in our culture and in our day, maybe more than any other time in history, it's just become very easy to develop an exaggerated estimation of our own importance in the universe. Amen? We are a proud people, a narcissistic people. I mean, you guys aren't. I'm just saying I am. I'm sure you guys are all very humble people. In fact, let let me do a quick survey here. Raise your hand if you're a very humble person. Okay, we had one guy lie in the back. Okay, Carl, Audrey, okay, you're about to be publicly rebuked. But other than uh, Carl and Audrey, uh, we didn't raise our hand. Why? Because we're really proud and we don't want to be seen as falsely humble, right? Uh, we would like to raise our hand, but our pride says don't raise your hand because then you'll be seen as proud. The reality is we're very proud. Let me do a real quick, this is a surface level uh, test to see if you're a proud person, okay? So check your own heart with me for a second. Number one, when you see a group photo and you're in that group photo, who's the first person you look for? <laughs> our eyes are restless until we land on our own face. It doesn't matter if we like it or hate it. We're not going to stop and look at it. We want to find ourselves first. Number two, if you're at a uh, reception or church luncheon or whatever, and you're going through the dessert line and the brownie or the cake or the pie or the ice cream has been pre-cut and apportioned onto plates, and you come up to that dessert table, what's the first thing your eye is looking for? The biggest piece. <laughs> because I know that no one, certainly no one, is more qualified or deserving of the biggest piece of pie than me, Right? We do this. Think about your social media presence. If it's LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or all the other ones I don't even know about, do you tend to put your most or least flattering picture on your Instagram profile picture? Your most, right? 
It doesn't matter if you're with your best friend and they look horrible. If you look good, it's going on the interwebs, right? For all to see. One of my personal favorite Facebook profile pics is a picture that was from about a year ago, and I'm standing right here. It's me and Pastor Chris and Pastor Tyler and me. And I look great. I looked so good that day. I kind of had a tan because it was springtime like this, and my hair looked, it was just, just right, you know. My adult acne was really moderate at the time. I mean, <laughs> just humbling, being a 32-year-old with uh, some acne. But, you know, those were kind of in check that week, and my smile was fresh, and I look good. Now, Chris, <laughs> if, you, if you look at Chris in the profile pic, see, he had just got done preaching, and we had, like, some HVAC issues that day. And so his receding hairline is just exposing all of the sweat, like beating up on his forehead. And the light was coming through this skylight and kind of gleaming off, accentuating these valleys right here. And then uh, because of the HVAC issues also, and he preached that day, I didn't. So I look rested and, and, you know, I just freshened up. And he's pitted out from here to here. His shirt is soaked in sweat. Guess what? I don't care. I don't care. I looked so good. Probably nine out of the last 12 months, that has been my profile pic for all like 1,700 contacts. I don't care what Chris looks like. But guess what? I don't feel guilty about it because he has a way of continually exaggerating my lack of coordination. He brings up the rope swing incident all the time. It's just because he's insecure about his poor grammar and bad spelling, you know? Um, and so I get that. And uh, that's just the way we roll. That is our default disposition as human beings. We have a way of glorifying and elevating ourselves on a humorous level or on a serious level, and we will do it at the expense of other people all day, every day, all day long. So the question is, how in the world did we get so dysfunctionally narcissistic, right? I mean, what led to this? And so let me give us a brief kind of theological framework for our dysfunctional narcissism and how we got here. And then we're going to get into chapter 14 and we're going to see what Jesus' instructions are to us in light of that. But number one, how did we get here? Starts all the way back in the very beginning. Uh, The Bible says that God himself exists in a community. You've heard of the Trinity. So God exists as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So for eternity past, God has never been lonely. He's existed in a community. And it's been a humble... um, honor-deflecting, glory-deferring community and unity within the Godhead. And so God the Father loves and adores the, the Son and the Holy Spirit, and the Son consistently deflects honor and glory to the Father and loves the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit um, speaks highly of, of, of God the Son, and he glorifies and worships God the Father. And within God, his oneness and his threeness, there is a community of worship and adoration and Honor and glory deflecting and deferring. And then Genesis 1 says that God made us, human beings, in his image and likeness. What that means in part is that we are communal creatures. And so in the garden, we are designed to to live in community with each other. And that community was intended to be a honor deferring, glory deflecting community of being radically for each other and worshiping God. But in Genesis chapter 3 says that our first parents in the first act of selfishness chose to eat a meal out of community, out of community with God the Father, disobeying God the Father and seeking their own good. And with that first act of sin and rebellion, selfishness and self-promotion entered the human equation. And ever since that time, you and me and your Aunt Sally and every other person has been both a victim of the selfish sin 
and we are culprits of this thing called pride and selfishness and self-promotion and egoism. That's us. Now, I'm going to give you all the Bible in like 90 seconds. Fast forward to Jesus. The culmination of God's redemptive work in history comes when he comes in the form of a man. Jesus Christ comes. Get this, not only to take the guilt of our sin away, though that's important. When you trust Jesus, guilt is removed. But the other side of that is the power of sin in your life in the present starts to become removed as well. And so God came in the person of Jesus not to just get us out of hell and into heaven, though he did. He also came that he might start to recreate that which we lost in the garden which was a sense of others-honoring, humble, God-worshiping community, and it's called the church. It's called the kingdom of God where we're supposed to see and taste, though not yet perfectly, this kind of community among us. And the idea for the Christian then is that our guilt is removed, and we would start to reflect that humility of our Savior that lives inside of us through the work of the Holy Spirit. And so that we would start to become that kind of community that defers honor, deflects glory, lifts up and exalts other people, worships God, and takes the cheap seats at all costs. That we would be a humble, humble, humble people. So as we get into our text this morning, City Light, I just want to... I want to encourage us, my prayer for us at City Light is that this would be us. That our reputation in the city... When people think about, oh, City Light, that's that church, whether they are Christians, whether they love Jesus, whether they even like Christians, all that aside, that the two things our city couldn't deny is, number one, City Light loves Jesus. They're all about Jesus. They worship Jesus. There's something about Jesus in that culture. Number two, they're a humble people. Whether I agree with them theologically, politically, worldview, philosophy, even if I disagree, I have to say there's something about them because they're humble. They're always deflecting and deferring honor and glory. They're always speaking highly of other churches and people and organizations. When I'm around them, I feel loved and cared for. I don't hear a lot of bragging, but I hear a lot of questions. How are you? Right? That they would sense in us the humility of Jesus lived out among us. And so let's get into our verses. And I want to go to work here. We've got some verses to do. And I want to invite God to go to work in our hearts. See, I can preach and we can pray, but only God can create this kind of community among us. And so let's humbly sit under the teaching of his word, and let's ask him to actually shape our hearts through this text this morning. Amen? So, uh, no surprise, we're going to hit it in two points. My favorite number. Uh, Point number one, the walk of shame. Point number two, the walk of fame. Okay? Walk of shame and walk of fame. Number one, let's talk about the walk of of shame. Here we go. Verse 7, we're going to go through 9. It says, Now, he, that's Jesus, had told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, Give your place to this person. And then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. Very simple illustration. Jesus says, imagine you go to a wedding reception. All right, the ceremony's done. You've left the church building. You walk into the reception hall and you walk into the room. And there in front of you is an elevated table where the bride and the groom are. And uh, there's some open seats next to them on either side. And you notice like they got the expensive champagne, not the cheap stuff, right? 
They got the crystal glasses, not the plastic one. They got the real flower bouquets, not the fake ones. And you go, wow, like all the lights are on that table. Jesus says, do yourself a favor. Don't, don't go sit there, you know. Uh, it's not going to end well for you. Imagine that in front of that table, there's some, some additional tables of honor. And they also have the big flower bouquets. And they seem to have like a VIP access to that head table. Jesus is saying, yeah, don't sit there either. He says, because what's going to happen is you're going to sit down at that uh, head table and a groomsman's going to come and you're going to have a really awkward, uncomfortable situation when the groom looks at you and says, hey, brother, like, glad you came to my wedding, but that seat was not set for you and my groomsman's here and you need to get up now, right? This is theological deep water. Are you tracking with this illustration? He says you're going to have to get up. But his point is by that time, all the other seats will have been taken and you will have to humbly, with shame, in front of everyone that's been invited to the wedding, get up and walk to the only seat that's over there in the corner by the restroom next to the DJ booth, right? Where the speaker, which is always way too loud at weddings, will be blaring right into your ear, and you'll have to hear the sound of the door opening and closing to the restroom all day. Or you sit in one of the front seats, and uh, Grandpa Harold comes in with his cane, and and, uh, he doesn't stand well, so he's impatiently standing next to you, waiting for you to give him back his seat, and the bride sees you. And she gives you the dirty look and comes forward and humbly asks you, you're in Grandpa Harold's seat. Uh, Can you get up? And sure enough, it's the seat by the restroom. And so everyone is looking at you and you take the walk of shame. That's what he's saying. Jesus is very lovingly, tenderly telling us, don't do that. It's not going to end well for you. Your self-exaltation will end in humility. Now, why is Jesus telling this very simple, very practical story? It starts back in verse 7. Here's why. Now when he told the parable, now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. And so remember, Jesus is at a dinner party, and if you go back six verses, you'll actually see this is some weird religious booby trap set for Jesus. So these religious, um, narcissistic, proud men have set a trap. They've brought a disabled man with dropsy, and they want to catch Jesus in the act of healing a man on the Sabbath so they can accuse him. So they're all watching Jesus. But ironically, Jesus is watching them. And he notices there's this vying for attention. There's this power struggle dynamic that's unfolding before his very eyes. In the first century, at a dinner party like this, it would have been customary to have a U-shaped table. The host would have sat at the base of the U, and the seats of honor would have been those directly perpendicular to the host seat. And the closer in proximity you can get to the host, the more it communicated about your sense of value, worth, and that social structure. And so what we're seeing is these religious dudes who are all about appearances all about the outside, are vying to get close to the host. Their motivation is they want to be seen with the powerful, they want to be associated with the popular, they want to be identified with the prestigious so that they themselves might receive some prominence. There's a hierarchy to the social structure, and they want to be seen in the seat of honor. And I love the simplicity of Jesus' message. Don't do that. Don't do that. But it's a good thing we don't do that, right? So let's pray and go home. Communion, let's come for, or wait, do we do this? We do this, don't we? I do this every day. You and I, we do this. It starts clear back in junior high, right? One of the strategies we do this is we tend to want to identify and associate with people that are higher on the social, social, social totem pole, and we want to disassociate with people that are lower than us on the social, social totem pole, right? Do you do this? 
We did it in junior high. Do you remember that time where the first kid like hit puberty and all of a sudden he has to shave his mustache and he can almost dunk a basketball and he's like the man, right? He's like legitimate. All of a sudden he's singing baritone. He's got armpit hair and everyone wants to be his friend. Like this dude is legit. And so it's him and the kid that's really good at soccer and other sports and the really cute blonde chick that grew up in a rich family and there at the table in the lunchroom. And where do you want to sit? With mustache man, the jock, and the cute girl, right? So you walk in with your tray, man, I would love to sit at that seat. But then there's also another table where, you know, there were a few people that like missed the whole conversation about deodorant. (laughs) Sixth grade health class where they like gave you a sample and talked to you about personal hygiene. They all must have been sick that day and they missed it because they never caught on. And halfway through their seventh grade year, they start stinking some funky odor. Like, my goodness, man take care of yourself. Or they never got the memo that like Velcro on your shoes was no longer cool in the seventh grade. It's like, bro, you got Velcro straps and you stink. And so I got my lunch tray. I can sit there. I can sit there. Where do we want to sit? We want to disassociate with those that are low on the social totem pole. And we want to associate with those who are higher in the social structure. And guess what? We don't grow out of it. We just get more subtle about it, right? We do it in the workplace. We call it networking. It's a lot more sanctified, but it's the same thing. Same thing. We scan the room. Who's got power, influence, popularity in the checkbook? How do I get them on my social calendar, right? Who's upstream on the organizational chart that I can befriend that will better my situation? Get a tea time made with that guy. Have a dinner party with that lady, right? Fill my social calendar with those kinds of people because it's going to better my situation. How do I get into a seat of honor? But thank God that never happens in churches. We don't do that at all here, man. We're so sanctified. I wish that were the case. I think this is one of the worst places where we see it. It can and does happen in churches all the time where suddenly we forget all of Jesus' teaching about leadership. Or who's going to be the leader? It's going to be the person who's willing to serve, right? Who's going to be first? It's going to be the person who signs up to be last. And all of a sudden you've got cultures where... Like the lead pastor is a mega superstar and the church members can't even get on his calendar because he's way too cool for them. And then there's this vying and jockeying for attention and affirmation and I'll do whatever I take to get this leadership position. And if I could just get my name and picture on that website and this whole vying for worldly, godly, godless, gross attention comes up within the church culture. That's what happened in this religious setting and that Jesus is so harshly coming out against. He's saying, don't do that. Don't do that. In every circle, we tend to um, uh, employ the first strategy. How do I associate with the top and disassociate with the bottom? Um, Here's the second way I think that we tend to do it. I think another way that we um, go for the seats of honor in culture is we tend to exaggerate our strengths and downplay our weaknesses. And we're pros at it. Man, I have developed this skill set. You don't even know I'm bragging. I can brag without you know I'm bragging. I'm a pro at it, and so are you. Right? We have these finely nuanced ways of making ourselves always sound 30% better than we actually are. <laughs> right? We exaggerate our gifts, we downplay our weaknesses, we ignore our faults, we don't talk about our sin. We can subtly gossip about that guy and what a train wreck he is, but we make it sound in a subtle way that it's like spiritual, like it's a prayer request, man. He's just his marriage, you know. Just pray for him. That guy is a hot mess. And in so doing, we feel like we are climbing the pole, the, the, the social totem pole. Um, and so, additionally, I think we tend to develop this kind of mantra in our heads. You guys remember Stuart Smalley from SNL in the 90s? You remember his mantra? 
If you remember, say it with me. I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. You guys didn't watch SNL in the 90s. And now you're all judging me because I, I wasn't even a Christian yet, okay? So don't judge me, even if I was. Maybe Sarah and I watched it last night, just saying. Doesn't matter. There's grace for that, okay? Stuart Smalley was this, like, psychologist, and that was he would look in the mirror, right? I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. And he would have guests like Michael Jackson come in and try to work on their self-confidence. And listen, that is the cultural Kool-Aid we've been drinking since elementary school. We've been consuming it, and we call it self-esteem. We call it confidence. We call it self-actualization. We call it self-help. And Jesus calls it sin, (laughs) right? I hate to say that. I know that's not a popular message, but let me very lovingly but also boldly say city light. We don't need more self-esteem. We need to esteem God. Amen? We esteem God, not ourselves. That word esteem means to lift up, to exonerate, to uh, honor, to exalt. We don't exalt and exonerate ourselves so that we can have more. We exalt and we exonerate. We esteem God and we worship him. And guess what? When we find our identity in him, we actually get more confidence than we ever could in promoting our own self-glory and prominence in this world. What Jesus is saying is, listen, that whole attempt at self-fame and the walk of fame and getting up to the seat of honor is actually going to lead to your shame. And so it's Jesus not being a Debbie Downer saying, yeah, whatever, right? It, this is the most loving, kind thing he can communicate to us. What he's saying is that no amount of recognition, honor, affirmation, or applause will ever be enough to satisfy your human heart. Because the affirmation and recognition we're all looking for can only be found in the love of God. Amen? That's what he's saying. He's saying, listen, before you get on the, before you get on the treadmill of performance, I want you to know it doesn't matter how many Twitter followers you have, how many promotions you get, how many raises you can earn, how popular you can become. Your run at fame will end in a walk of shame because none of those things are going to satisfy you. Because guess what? There's always more fame to be had. There's always more money to be made. There's always new social infrastructures to break into. There's always more popularity to chase, and you will never get enough. It's him very kindly and lovingly tell us you're going to run a race that has no finish line, and you're going to die exhausted. (laughs) So the invitation is humble yourself before God and find your exaltation in Jesus. Listen, the reason why you're a somebody isn't because you've gone out there and proved yourself to be worthy. It's because God says you're a somebody. Amen? Your value, dignity, and worth don't come from how many contacts you have on LinkedIn or how much you make. Or your, your value, dignity, and worth, your value comes from the price that God was willing to pay for you, which was the price of his son. Amen? Why do you have value? Because God says so. We esteem God, we humble ourselves, and he exalts us. What if you really believe that? I know we say, we preach this message so much at City Light. I preach the same sermon every week. You guys haven't caught on yet, right? We see the, say the same thing. Our value and worth is what God says about us, and he proved it in the person and work of Jesus. But my question back to you is, what if you actually believed that? I mean, not just up here, but in your heart of hearts, you no longer felt like you were in the courtroom of people's judgment trying to prove your value and your worth every day. That's the thing about self-esteem is whether high or low, you're always in the courtroom. 
Every day you get ahead or behind. Every single day. But what if you actually believed that you had nothing to prove and that Jesus' love for you was all that you needed and you could be freed up from trying to earn the affirmation of your father that he never gave you when you were 12? What if you actually believed that your identity was so secure in Jesus that you didn't need to prove yourself popular, which you never were in high school, and you've been living from that woundedness for 20 years ever since? I mean, really, what if you could get up every day and say, man, I'm valuable and worth it because of Jesus? That's what this message is. It's an invitation to say, man, Jesus, you are enough. I can humble myself. What if we were so rooted in that that we were actually able to obey what Jesus commands us to do in verse 10, which is to take the seat of least honor? Let's take a look at point two. I want to look at our last two verses, 10 and 11. Point two is going to be this, the walk of fame. Within this kingdom of God world that Jesus came to inaugurate, how do we take the walk of fame? What is the way to the seat of honor? Jesus is going to tell us. Look at verse 10, the walk of fame. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be honored. You know what the greatest freedom in life is? Learn this from my friend Paul Schleicher. The greatest freedom in life is having nothing to prove. The greatest freedom in life is having nothing to prove. Nothing to prove to nobody. I don't even know if that's grammatically correct, but that sounds good. Tweet that. I ain't, I ain't got nothing to prove to nobody. <laughs> it's the greatest freedom when you can realize, man, I'm not on trial. Wait a second. This isn't a competition. Jesus is saying, what if you showed up to that wedding reception, and when you scan the room, the first place your eye goes for is, man, where's the worst seat in here? And he said, oh, there's a seat by the restroom next to the DJ booth where the speaker's going to blare in my ear the entire, why don't I sit there? And you know what? Then some other people can enjoy the seats of honor. And he's saying, just maybe the groom's going to come in and say, hey, wait, wait, hey, buddy, what are you doing clear back by the bathrooms in the DJ booth? I, I wanted to invite you. Uh, you're my, in fact, come sit right next to me. And guess what? Rather than the walk of shame, what are you taking? In front of all the guests, you're going to take the walk of fame. Because you didn't exalt yourself. You were exalted by someone else. What a freedom to walk into a room and say, yeah, I think I'm going to take this, the chief seats. Isn't that paradoxical? The way to exaltation is humility. Isn't that the kingdom of God? Isn't that what every page of Scripture screams? When Jesus says, whoever wants to find his life will what? Lose it. The way to life is to death, to die to yourself. What's the way to be strong in the kingdom of God? It's to be weak, to be vulnerable, to admit your need. That's how you get strength, not by flexing your muscles and pretending that you're someone that you're not, right? Uh, what's the way to be a leader? It's to serve. How do you be number one? You get last in line. That's the way the kingdom of God works, and that's what Jesus is saying. Verse 11, he who exalts himself will be humbled. He who humbles himself will be exalted. We've got two options here, city life, A and B. Jesus says, A, you can exalt yourself, and you in this life and or on that last day will be humbled. And or you can humble yourself, and in this life or on that last day you will be exalted. So the question for us, I just want to ask the question, um, where are you at with this? I mean, really, do you, do you believe this stuff? Really? 
This is a nice sermon, but I'm going to ask you about the way you view the world and your social settings and your status. But Do you really walk in the freedom of this? Or out of insecurity, do you still put yourself on trial every day and try to prove your worth and earn love and affirmation and head nods in every conversation? Or out of security in Christ, have you found the freedom that says, I have nothing to prove nobody? I ain't got nothing to prove nobody. Um, I've got a radical idea, okay? I think I'm going to write a book about this. This is cutting-edge ministry philosophy, okay? So buckle up. This is, you're going to get your ties worth this morning. What if we obeyed Jesus? I know, crazy, because it'd be more fun to just look up the original Aramaic and throw it on the boards and, you know, just pray about it. But what if the next time you went to a wedding, you found the cheap seat and sat there, right? Amazing. What if tomorrow when you go to work, you would intentionally look for opportunities to take the position of least honor and to exalt other people? Wouldn't that change something? What if all of a sudden this culture of Jesus kingdom humility caught on to like 1,500 people that came to City Light this morning and all of a sudden there's this culture of humility, this picture of the Trinity, this um, social infrastructure called the kingdom of God where we're actually seeking to outdo one another in love and good deeds. Where we're constantly placing um, ourselves in the place of humility and deflecting honor to other people and worshiping God and saying, how do I stay out of the, st- out of the spotlight and in the places of humility? And I just want to say, um, uh, City Light, I'm actually really proud of you. In so many ways, I see this kind of culture, little seeds of it popping up in our church all the time. So one of the unique privileges I have of just being a pastor is I kind of just, uh, I get to see the stuff that happens all day, every day, every week. And let me just say, it's amazing the kind of humility that is in this room. Um, Some of you are sitting next to people that you would never know, but I'm the one that gets the call that says, hey, I just inherited a whole bunch of money. I want to give all of it away. Is there a single mom in your church? Because I'm just going to write the check. And you don't know about that, but I get that call. And I want to say those people are in our church. It's the kind of culture that's already happening. I love that. Um, Even the finances of the church, like Chris and I don't see the names and the checks, and we've done that intentionally, but... Uh, we still will get the email or, or see the person or someone drops a check and says, hey, I need this to get to the giving box. And let me just say this. Um, the big checks don't come from who you think they do. It's not the rich people. It's not the people who are giving out of their abundance. It's the people who are giving sacrificially out of their poverty. It's amazing. It's absolutely amazing. I love that if you were to come here this morning at like 7 a.m., you would see a dude with a Ph.D. in Bible who's a scholar and professor Guess what his service to the church is? He puts the chairs out. That's awesome. I love that. For two hours, he's been over like this. Chair, lock, chair, lock. Not exegeting Hebrew. Not with a big stage and lights. Not with a big audience saying, isn't he smart? He's sitting your seats up so you have a place to sit, eat your donut, and listen to a sermon. That's incredible. That's incredible. I love that some mornings you'll come at 6.30 and you're going to see a lieutenant colonel in the Air Force. Hundreds of people salute him when he walks by, but he comes at 6.30, going to pull down the screens. He comes, he plugs in all the microphones, he changes all the batteries, throws the old one. You'd never know he was here. And guess what? He does it so we can come, hear the Word of God preach, and worship Jesus in this place. It's incredible. It's absolutely incredible. If you stick around for like two, three hours right here in the Omar after this gathering's done, you're going to see two people. You're going to see a dude that literally comes here every week from the city mission. 
and you're going to see a dude with a, a law degree from Creighton University, and side by side, guess what they're doing? While the rest of us are napping and eating lunch at Panera with our friends. They mop. Like three hours. This is like 11,000 square feet just in this room, and they just mop all day, like a homeless dude and lawyer. They just mop. What's up, bro? Right? <laughs> The gospel has this way of just leveling the playing field, doesn't it? In the kingdom of God, there's no status, there's no rank and file, there's no bunch of initials after your name on your email tagline, there's no I salute you, we all bow down to Jesus and we humbly work side by side. I love that. In City Light, that culture is catching on. And I'm just praying, man, that more and more and more and more of that would come up within our church. One of my dreams for our church, I got all these kind of like little things that I think about, like someday wouldn't that be cool, Jesus, if you did that? One is that, what if there was like a six-month waiting list for serve teams? My dream is that the new person comes in and goes back, there's like a get connected, got a sign and a table, some volunteers, and they come back and say, hey, I would love to like serve and like mop floors. And I would love the response to be, man, thank you for doing that. We actually got like a nine-month waiting list on floor mopping. Um, so... Next time we plant another church and a whole 300 people, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll keep you on the waiting list. We'll give you a call, right? But you know what? We notice, like in this neighborhood, there's like some rails on people's houses that have fallen off years ago. And, and we're going to get some friends and go just knock on their door, see if we can run to Lowe's and kind of help them make a new railing. You want to help us? We're not going to wear matching T-shirts. It's not a church-wide initiative. It's just Christians caring, right? <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool if that culture spilled out of here and into there, Right? Wouldn't that be cool if that was our culture in our homes? i got to say, even mopping the floors is glorious because it's only two hours a week. It's not that hard. But I use the same analogy all the time because it's where the Spirit of God is working. It's a whole different thing at 3 a.m. when your one-year-old is screaming, right? And you've got the option, A, I can pretend like I'm asleep. My wife must think I'm such a sound sleeper. The monitor is right here, baby screaming. Ah! I just pretend to snore, right? That's option A. Or will I, in my home, race downstairs and get the baby so that my wife can sleep? That's a whole nother level of sacrifice, right? That's a whole nother way of humbly taking the least seat of honor in your household. What if that happened in our workplace? Really, what if, like, Christians in our community consistently filled their calendars and social priorities with people that were downstream on the organizational flow chart? Here's a radical idea. What if people actually got overlooked for promotions because they didn't play the game? Would that be a loss or a win? Well, the tithing would go. No, it's a win. Wouldn't that be awesome? What if you put that on your resume? I didn't get promoted for six years. I didn't get a raise because I didn't play the game. But there's a lot of people downstream that felt really loved because I took a janitor to lunch and not the CEO. It's incredible. Guess what the promise of verse 11 is? He who humbles himself will be exalted. And so I just want to encourage you, if it means foregoing some exaltation in this world, the promise still holds true. Whether in this life or in the next, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Man, would Jesus create that culture among us? I would love to brag about our offering going down 10% because no one ever got promoted. (laughs) That would be fantastic. May Jesus create that culture among us. I I want to shut this plane, land this plane, shut this thing down. Mixing metaphors. God has his way of keeping me humble. Preacher, what can't talk? From Waverly, it's cool. Bear with me. Um, I want to shut it down this way. That I would say this. The way that we get humble is not by chasing humility. It's by chasing Jesus. See that right? 
Humility has this way of evading our grasp. It's a slippery beast. Everything, every time we think we've caught humility, <laughs> just when we think we've got it, we've lost it. That's by the nature of humility. And so guess what? We don't chase humility, we chase Jesus. And in chasing Jesus, he makes our hearts humble. Jesus was the most humble person to ever walk on our planet. Why? Because he was eternal, divine, God, King, Creator, Lord, right? Member of the Godhead Trinity, and he leaves the comforts of heaven, rips a hole in time, space, eternity, and becomes flesh, born in a barn to a single, unwed, teenage mother in a little city of no influence or affluence, Spends his whole life swinging a hammer with his old man, blue-collar dude, never made a whole bunch of money. Lived in northern rural backwoods Galilee for almost the entirety of his life, right? He then proceeds to be falsely accused and murdered as the atonement for your sins and mine. (laughs) That's our God. How do we not get humble under that? But guess what? Philippians 2 and verse 9 says that because of his humility... God the Father has exalted him high and above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And the reason why he's exalted and why we praise him and why we lift our hands to him is because he first humbled himself for us. Amen? That's the good news of the gospel. And as we chase Jesus, it makes us incredibly humble and thankful and worshipful. And so let me, let me end with a warning. And encouragement. Very simply, I need to just communicate this. The warning, if you have never in your life, if your entire life you have spent exalting yourself, elevating your position, and you've never humbled yourself to the place of saying, I am a sinner and I need a savior. The warning is this. Your reputation, the biggest empire you can build, your portfolio, the number of zeros in your bank account means nothing before a holy God on that last day. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. And the warning and invitation for you this morning is this. Jesus died for your sins of pride. And he would gladly exalt you if you would bow your knee to him voluntarily. Say, Jesus, I am a sinner. I have missed it. I humbly confess that before you, and I need and receive your grace. Would you become a Christian today? Would you just tell him that? Would you humble yourself before God? And then the encouragement is this. Listen, if you felt conviction throughout this sermon, if you've nodded your head and thought, yeah, that's me, I'm still playing the game, and I'm 40, 50, 60 something, and I'm still insecure and vying for people's attention, and at the root of that really is pride, the good news is this. Jesus died for your pride too. And so the great freedom in this passage is this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and the good news is Jesus humbled himself to die and forgive you of your pride. And now the invitation is this. Christians, There is such a great freedom when we can quit spinning our wheels trying to be somebody and when we can live with nothing to prove. There's a great freedom when we can, in, in obedience to verse 10, look for the places of least honor. When we can exalt other people and worship God and just get out of the way. City Light, would that be true among us? Would Jesus more and more shape our hearts and shape our community to be that kind of community? Don't you want that? Let's pray that Jesus would do it among us. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the humble servant that stepped out of eternity and onto a cross, and you did it for us. God, thank you. I am the chief of all sinners. I'm the guy with like 15 spotlights on him right now, (laughs) addicted to applause and approval and performance. God, my only hope is that you humbled yourself for the sins of my pride. Would you keep me humble? Would you keep me humble? 
God, for those in the room who have never for the first time in all humility bowed their knee, would they right now have the humility to just confess along with me, I am a sinner. I'm a prideful man, woman, or child. My whole life has been about me. Jesus, forgive me. I believe that you came and died for my pride. You as a humble man took the penalty for my pride and I receive your grace and forgiveness now. Would you come into my life? Would you forgive me for my prideful sins? And I humbly receive your grace that I could never earn on my own. Would you change my heart? Would you make me a Christian now as I receive you into my life? And then God, for our church, I just realize I can preach, we can pray, but only you can actually create this culture among us. God, would you do it? We believe in you. We believe in your power. We believe in your presence. I really long for this vision, and I can't get us there. But God, what a witness if you actually did it. What a witness for Christ if you would shape our hearts in the humble ways, if it would be a contagious culture of humbling ourselves, taking the seats of least honor, and that people would see a picture of the kingdom of God in Christ by the witness of our community. We invite you to do that. Keep our hearts humble, teachable, Remind us of your love and your grace. And God, would you honestly really create that culture in and among us. For we will give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.